Good morning, family. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We just saw on the screen they were quoting from Psalm 139. There the psalm says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. And on down, it says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Our Creator considers life precious and valuable. God made us. We remember this week the great tragedy in our land of millions of unborn children who have been sacrificed really on the altar of convenience in our land. And um, we find ourselves at a unique point in time over the last 50 years where this week the Supreme Court could rule on um, and make a change that might bring an end to some of this slaughter. So please keep that in prayer this week. And with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come this morning confessing on behalf of our people, our world, our nation in particular, that we have thought so little of human life, that we have allowed the, the killing of countless children, unborn, that we as well have devalued life in times with those who are marginalized, those who are hurting, those who are different, those in so many ways we have discounted and devalued life. Father, we confess that, for as your word makes it quite clear, you as the author of life, the creator of all you consider each human life significant and important. Father, may we as a people value that. Father, that is a big concern for us, but it is really a symptom of a much deeper problem, a much deeper, more serious issue, and that is that our nation has by and large rejected you. Father, it's a symptom of a heart problem here in our land. And we ask, Lord, that you would bring revival to our land. That you would bring men and women and young people and children to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. For it is then and only then that they will honor life even as you do. So, Father, we we ask that for our, our land. We pray that we as your people would live faithfully and live as good examples that would draw others to Christ. Father, as we come to this hour where we dig into Your Word, I pray that You would make this sweet and special time, that we might hear You speak through Your Word, and that we might be listening, that we might conform our wills and our lives to Your Word that you might be honored, that you might be glorified, that we might be changed, and ultimately that it might bring forth even change in our world for your glory. So we ask in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I invite you to take out your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Last week we began a new message series that's going to take us through the spring, through, through the end of May. As we look at chapters 5, 6, and 7 here in the Gospel of Matthew, looking at the longest and most beloved sermon that we have on recorded for us in Scripture of Jesus. He spoke this message about a year, a little over a year into his three and a half year long ministry. But where that list was given, we don't really know for sure. The text says he was in Galilee and he went up on a mountainside. We don't know where it is. Tradition says it was on this hillside overlooking on the Sea of Galilee on the north shore. That may or may not be the spot. But there Jesus spoke. And in this sermon, Jesus describes for us, as it says, his disciples gathered around. Certainly the twelve were there. More likely a larger circle of disciples, simply those who called themselves followers of Christ, those who identified themselves and committed themselves to Jesus. And very likely, even a larger crowd was there. We know at the end of the sermon we saw last week that that there was a large crowd of people there. But this message was intended for his disciples. And that means it's intended for us. I assume that most of us, that we're here, most of us identify ourselves as followers of Christ. And uh, most of you watching at home or watching on video later, most of you maybe... Consider yourselves followers of Christ. This message is for us. And so we should listen. What does Jesus have to say for us? In this message, what Jesus lays out is is what it is to be a follower of His. What does a Christian life look like? If you've ever wondered, what am I supposed to look like, be like, act like as a Christian? Well, from the words of Jesus, here we have, I think, the best description we can find. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So we're going to take time over these next few months to unpack it and really get a a good understanding of what Jesus thinks we should look like as those who wear His name. Jesus lets us know, by the way, that following Him... By the way, this is an actual picture of Jesus on the hillside. Uh, Archaeologists found it uh, recently. Let's us know in here what... that. Following Him is a life of joy, a life of blessing, of blessedness. Because every one of these statements in the beginning of this sermon begin with the word happy or the word blessed, depending on the translation you're reading. Jesus wants us to, as, as His followers, to be people of joy. And we will be if we follow what He has called us to be. Someone once said that when we first read the Sermon on the Mount, that we realize that Jesus is turning everything upside down. Then when we go back and we read it the second time, we discover everything is turned right side up. In other words, what he's really saying is that what Jesus calls us to do, and he says, by the way, if we're going to experience this blessed life, this happy life, It's only going to come, it's only going to happen when we live a life that is radically different from life that is normal in this world. 
That is the life that he describes in this sermon. It is, as we said, it is life turned upside down. The very things that this world exalts, Jesus diminishes. The very thing this world diminishes, Jesus exalts. And he calls us to a very different life. But while the way that Jesus calls us is opposite of the way of the world, what we realize is what we discover, it's the way that life is supposed to be. Life that God intended for us from the beginning. Because, and it's what we are supposed to be doing now because we are no longer, you see, citizens of this world. The Bible tells us that when you and I placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we were transferred immediately out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son He loves. And so the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, and he says that our citizenship is in heaven. So as citizens of heaven, we ought to be living very differently than citizens of earth. We are, as Peter says in his first little letter, he says that we are aliens and strangers in this world. And so Jesus, as he describes for us here in these chapters, in this sermon, Jesus describes for us a life that is very different, very countercultural, but it's the life that he calls for us to live as his followers. This sermon, as I said, begins with a series of statements that has often been called the Beatitudes. The word Beatitudes simply comes from the Latin word that means happy or blessed because there are eight statements here, each of which begins with the word blessed or the word happy. They each have, describe a characteristic, a character quality. And as it were, as Jesus, as he lists these eight Beatitudes, Jesus is painting a picture of what you and I should look like, a portrait of his followers. But a portrait not of what we look like on the outside, but a portrait of what we are to look like on the inside, inside qualities, inside characteristics. In the message, Jesus will tell us what we are to be doing, but here Jesus tells us who we are to be on the inside. What should our character be? What should, what should it be that moves us and, and drives us? Last week, we looked at the first four of these eight characteristics. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who know that they are spiritually bankrupt. Happy or blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. All of these things, the opposites you see of the world. The world says that we are to think highly of ourselves, not, not poorly of ourselves. We are to be those who party, not those who mourn. We are to be those who promote ourselves and exalt ourselves, not those who are meek and humble. It says, blessed are those who... Meek, for they shall inherit the earth, and blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus says this life that we are to live as followers of His will be a life that is happy, a life that is joyful, a life of satisfaction. But it will not be 
in the way that the world thinks that it will happen. It's not obtained by the way the world thinks it will be obtained. Well, today we pick up in verse 7 with the next four characteristics. Pick up verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As I studied this week, I was trying very hard to define this word merciful. What does it mean to be merciful? And I read lots and lots and lots of definitions. I found out it's actually a pretty hard thing to define. If you go to the Greek word, the Greek word for merciful, it's often translated for us merciful, but it also can be translated compassion. Compassion is a feeling, a feeling of pity, a feeling of concern, a feeling of love for someone. But the word merciful, in this word in particular, goes beyond just having a feeling for someone. It's beyond just looking at someone and feeling sorry for them and feeling concerned about them. That's implied, but it goes beyond because it's, it's a feeling someone else's pain to the point that you are moved, that you are motivated to do something about it. It's being compelled by your concern for them to take some action. I think the best definition I could create for this word is being merciful. It's a compassionate, there's the feeling, action. A compassionate action towards someone in need or someone undeserving. Because when you look at instances of mercy in Scripture, you, dis- you discover that mercy is often towards someone in need, someone who is poor, someone who is destitute, someone who is ill, someone who is sick, someone who is hurting, someone who is lonely. They have a need, a particular need, and there's compassion, mercy for them that takes action. Other times... This mercy is expressed not to someone who we think of in a need that way, but someone who is very undeserving because they have done something very wrong. They have caused some offense to someone. They have done something wrong. They're undeserving. So they may not be destitute and poor. They may not have a physical ailment. They may not need mercy as we normally think in some ways, but they need mercy in terms of forgiveness or pardon. So mercy is a compassionate action towards someone with a particular need or who is particularly undeserving. When we look at the scripture, we also discover that God is merciful. If we go back to look in scripture, we we discover that one of the the most common descriptors, the most common descriptions of God is that He is merciful. Even back in the Old Testament where most people think God in the Old Testament is the God of wrath and God in the New Testament is the God of mercy. But I challenge you to do a study and dig through and what you discover is that as often as you find God's wrath talked about in the Old Testament Scriptures, we also discover God's grace and God's mercy So often it's said, we won't go through lots of references, I'll just put one up from James chapter 5 where it says the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. He's full of mercy. Not only is God merciful, 
But God has also poured out His mercy upon you and me. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it, describes that mercy this way. But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ Jesus when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. If you, if you have been saved from your sin today, if you have been rescued from, from the dominion of darkness and placed in the kingdom of God's dear Son, it is only because of God's mercy. None of us are deserving. We looked at that last week. And poor of spirit, that's the beginning point for everyone to come to the grace of God and the mercy of God is to recognize I've got nothing. I'm spiritually bankrupt. God pours out in His mercy. He is merciful toward the humble, those who recognize and admit and own their spiritual bankruptcy. Because God has poured out His mercy upon us, the Bible tells us that God calls us to do likewise, to give mercy to others. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 6, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. We've received great mercy from God. And the more that you and I understand how much mercy we've received, the more we become aware of our spiritual poverty and of God's great mercy to us, brothers and sisters, and the, the more that we inclined we are to give mercy to the poor and the needy and the undeserving. Because the more we realize that we ourselves are poor and needy and undeserving. And the more we realize we're poor, needy and undeserving, the more inclined we are and willing we are to give mercy to others. And the more that we give mercy to others, the more we become aware as well of our that we are poor and needy and undeserving. And the more grace God gives to us, the more we become aware of God's grace to us. And that's what really this whole beatitude is about. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's really the more that we give mercy, the more we become aware of the mercy that God has already given and the more we, we see in His His mercy being poured out upon us and then we give more mercy and it's this wonderful cycle. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So Jesus' followers should be merciful people, full of mercy in other words. I may play with the word that way. It should spill out of us because God has poured so much mercy on top of you that it's just overflowing and it spills out on everyone around us and everyone we come in contact with. That should describe us as Christians. It should show up. The mercy that we have received should show up in the mercy that we give to one another at home to our siblings, to our parents, to our children, to our husband, to our wife. It should show up in the mercy that we give to our neighbors. It should show up in our workplace. It should show up in our school. It should show up at the gym. In the way that we treat others, it should show up as mercy is poured out to others. It should show up as we interact with people who serve us, like the people who cut our hair, the barber and the beautician 
It should show up with the store clerk. It should show up with the waiter or the waitress at the restaurant. It should show up most especially with those ones who are not as capable as we think they should be. Those who don't do as good a job as we think they should. Those who are slower than we think they ought to be. Have you ever encountered of those, any of those folks? Has your response been merciful? Or have you been irritated? Impatient? Rude. The mercy of God should show up in how we treat the poor and how we treat the sick and how we treat the needy and how we treat the loner and how we treat that weird person and how we treat the outcast. As followers of Jesus, we should be the kindest, most thoughtful, most generous, most gracious people that there are. That's what we should be. I wonder how we do. Sadly, all too often, Christians don't have that reputation in our world. Christians are often regarded and thought of and characterized and caricatured at times. But as people who are judgmental, critical, dour, downers, People who are not easy to be around. Sadly, sometimes some of us have earned that reputation. May I say, by the way, while that's a bit of a challenge, may I say, I am always pleased. Matter of fact, I'm always excited as I look around this congregation. Because as I watch you all, I'm always blown away. I'm blown away by how generous you are, how busy you are in serving people in need, people in our congregation, people outside of our congregation, taking meals here and there, sending cards here and there, calls of encouragement, giving, working the food pantry, taking care of meals at the motel and and, uh, going and helping people in the sick, volunteering in hospitals, doing so many things that so many of you are doing in so many ways. And I'm thrilled to see that because that is what Jesus is calling us to be and do, to be merciful people. And it should show up in all of these ways and more. And so I am not here to beat you. I'm here to say, good, keep it up and do it all the more. We are to be known as merciful people. As Galatians chapter 6 says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Our mercy should start at home. And then it should move among the brothers and sisters in Christ. It should be especially evident here. But the mercy of God should then move outside the walls our, uh, the mercy, I should say, of, of Jesus' followers, it, it's His mercy flowing through us, and it should move out of these walls. And it should be evident to our neighbors. It should be evident to those that we interact with and rub shoulders with every day. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
the sixth of the Beatitudes we find in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The religious people in the crowd that were listening that day, the disciples there and any others who were there, and likely that most of the people were there were Jews. Most of them were probably fairly religious. Some of them, I'm sure, were coming along because they were anxious to see the next show, the next healing. But by and large, most of these people were very religious. And I'm sure most of the religious people then, as most of the religious people today, would be very happy if when Jesus said this, what he said was, Blessed are the pure, for they shall see God. See, in that day, just like in this day, religious people are very good at looking very pure. I look out here today, I can't see you folks at home, so maybe you don't look this way at home. But I look out here today, and I see a bunch of folks. Matter of fact, no, no, we won't go. <laughs> I look out here today, and everybody scrubbed, you look nice. You know, you, you cleaned yourselves up, you got your hair combed, uh, you know, ladies, you got the makeup on, we got, the, we got our best Sunday duds on, and we not only have the best clothes on, we've got our best Christian look. We've got a good smile, we laugh at the right times, we, we get a little sad face at the right times, we, we uh, you know, say amen when it, you know, we think that helps, and, and we know how to do the look. And that works really good, but it's not all the time. I think of the wife who told her husband, you know, let's do something different today, honey. How about today, just for a change, you be really charming at home and grouchy at church. <laughs> oh, you see, we know how it is to come to church and we are the most pleasant, wonderful, excited people, you know, just nice, easy to get along with until we get to the car or, you know, halfway home and it starts up. We all know how to do that to, you know, at the right time we can turn the little switch, you know. You've ever been in a discussion, you know, with your wife or husband, you know, and the phone rings? <laughs> and however you think, hello. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> well, we do that at church, don't we? But our problem really isn't just a matter of geography or circumstance. Reality is it's a bigger issue. It's not just that we, we sometimes can put on a face here. Sometimes we put on a face, we think we've got everybody fooled. You guys have one of these? I love these things. These, these, most, lots of people have these now because they, you put a little ice in there and it's, it keeps ice all day long, right? You, you even pour more stuff in and, and you still have ice all day long. It's awesome. Hot stuff, I understand. I don't like, like hot drinks, but you put hot drinks in there, they stay hot all day. They're pretty cool. A couple months ago, I was in my office. I was moving some stuff around. I noticed at the end of my couch, down there on the floor, there was one of these. Just like this one. It wasn't this one, but it's just like this one. Stainless steel, beautiful cup. And I picked it up. I realized there's still stuff in there. And I thought, well, I'm going to go dump this out and try to find out whose this is. I'm on my way down the hall 
on the, and go into the bathroom. I pull the lid off and oh my. Woo! There was some interesting odor. And I thought about donating the thing to science because there was some really interesting stuff growing in there. On the outside, it was sparkly clean. And, if, and I, I was, might have been tempted if I thought it was mine, you know, to take a swig, you know. <laughs> oh! And the reality is, that's how we can be as people. All shiny and beautiful on the outside, and the inside is a hot mess. Right? That's what Jesus is talking about here when he says, not blessed are the pure, not blessed are those who look pure on the outside, but he says, blessed are the pure in heart. That's the point of this beatitude. You see, God views things differently. God is always more concerned about what's inside than what's outside. So he told Samuel back there in 1 Samuel, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God is always more concerned about what's inside than what's outside. You see, because the reason for that is because it's not the outside stuff that defiles us. Now, yes, we can do some pretty defiling stuff on the outside, okay? But the point is that the outside stuff, it didn't start there. It started on the inside. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We defile ourselves on the outside because it's the expression, the outward expression of the defiling stuff on the inside. So Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart. Billy Graham said, we are suffering from only one disease in the world. Our basic problem is not a race problem. Our basic problem is not a poverty problem. Our basic problem is not a war problem. Our basic problem is a heart problem. The Scripture says it this way in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Another translation says beyond cure. King James says desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Who can know it? Who can mind the depths of just how messed up we are? We're so corrupt. The heart of man is desperately wicked. We've got a heart problem. Billy Graham's right. And that's a real problem because our Beatitudes here says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matter of fact, the reality is, no one can see God unless they have a pure heart. But it's just said, we've got a heart that's desperately wicked and we can't mind the depths of it. It's so corrupt and so sick. What do we do? We cry exactly. I am with you. How can we see God? Good news. God arranged a heart transplant. Here's what the scripture says. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. There it is. The Bible says that when you and I, if you and I will place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, 
What God does at that moment is He takes our sin and He puts our sin on Jesus. Jesus paid for that sin on the cross. He died and rose again. And Jesus takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ and He places it on us. So when God looks at us, He doesn't see the filthiness of our heart. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees a pure heart. That is good news, brothers and sisters. So all of us who trust in Jesus, the Bible says when we have embraced God's grace, it changes us. It changes us and no longer do we want to play the games of trying to just be good on the outside while covering up all the garbage on the inside. Rather, what happens is because we, we understand the great grace of God and the great mercy of God, it moves us to, to want to change on the inside. That's exactly what the Apostle John wrote in his, in his first little letter where he said this, Beloved, we are God's children. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, we are at that moment, we are brought into God's family. He makes us His child. As many as received Him, John chapter 1 says, as many as believed on His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. We don't look like it right now. We look around and we say, kind of messed up over there, yeah. We are God's children now. We do have a new heart. But it's not apparent yet. But we know that when He shall appear, when Jesus will come, when He appears, we will be like Him. We're going to be transformed, changed. Finally, we will be what we should be. But notice what He says. We'll be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And He says, And everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as He is pure. See, God has given us a new heart. He's declared us pure. He's given us Jesus' righteousness. But it's not apparent yet because we're still sinners living in a sinful world. One day that's going to change. But until then, he says, we get busy about the work of purifying ourselves, even as we are pure. We get busy trying to live up to the identity that God has given to us. We try to live up to that. Live worthy of the calling to which He has called us, Paul says in Ephesians. That's what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who have been redeemed through His grace by believing in Him and are in the process now of embracing this. We have the assurance one day we're going to see God. In the meantime, we are called to live as the people that we are. The third beatitude here says, Blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Have you noticed we live in a world with lots of fighting? If you haven't noticed that, you live alone, you don't have the internet. Or TV, you have no friends. Otherwise, you've noticed we live in a world where there's lots of fighting. There are lots of factions, lots of struggles, lots of dissension, lots of division. It's all around us. We find it at school, we find it at work, we find it in, you know, in the national stage, 
in our country, as people fight against each other in our country, with other nations, we find it even in our homes, don't we? That's why one chapel man uh, months ago told me, he said, you know, sometimes I wake up grumpy. Other times I let her sleep in. The reality is, we live in a world of difficult people. And when we look in the mirror, we discover we are one too. The Bible tells us that God is the ultimate peacemaker. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. By the way, we were at enmity with God, the Bible says, because of our sin. God was not our enemy, but we made ourselves God's enemy. (laughs) We were at enemy at war with Him. Therefore, we have been justified by faith. Now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the good news, brothers and sisters. People are at war with each other. We can't get along with each other because the relationship with God was broken. With that relationship broken, every other relationship fell apart. The Bible says God has made a way for peace with Him through Jesus. When we trust Him as our Savior, we have peace with God. It goes on a few verses later, verse 10 there in Romans 5 says, When we were God's enemies, there it was, we were enemies of God. We were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. So, God is the ultimate peacemaker. We were enemies with God. God made a way to reconcile us through the death of Jesus Christ. Now we have peace with God. And now He calls you and me to follow in His footsteps as peacemakers. When you and I live as God has called for us to be as peacemakers rather than peace breakers, what will happen is is that people will begin to see in us some family resemblance with our Father, the ultimate peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. If the world doesn't look at us and see us living as peacemakers, then we are not living like our Father. We're not following in His footsteps. They should see it. It should be apparent to them. Let me suggest three ways. It's not This passage doesn't tell us what peacemakers look like. It just says, blessed are those who are peacemakers. Let me suggest three ways that we should look like peacemakers from Scripture. One is that we are to share the gospel. You see, the most needy place for everyone, for all of us to have peace, is peace in our relationship with God. We had made ourselves enemies. God made a way for us to have peace with Him through Jesus, as I just said. Now that we have that peace with God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, it behooves us it is, it is imperative to us to go and share that news with others how they can have peace with God. How What a terrible thing it is for us to have that good news and not share that with people. So the Bible tells us this. All of this is from God. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. The word reconciliation means to bring together people who were at odds. To mend a relationship. God has reconciled us to Himself. He's made the relationship right. 
between him and us. And now he's committed to us this ministry of reconciliation. What ministry is that? Well, it's that God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. Okay, so God has made a way to reconcile people through Jesus, not counting men's sin against them. And again, he says that he's entrusted, he's committed this message to us. When something is committed to us, it's given to us as a responsibility. We are to take care of it. We are to utilize it properly and not misuse it. God has given us the gift, the ministry of reconciliation. What are we doing with that? Well, he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are supposed to be ambassadors. What does the ambassador do? Go represent someone. We are ambassadors for Christ. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We're ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us, it says. What are we to be doing? Going out into the world saying, hey, God says, I want to have a relationship with you. I've made a way to forgive your sins, not have them counted against you through Jesus. And implore people, be reconciled to God. We're to be doing that as if God himself were here doing it, but he's not because he's given it to us. What does a peacemaker look like? We should be going out and telling people there is peace available with God. Blessed are the peacemakers. There's more though. Secondly, we should live in peace with others. We should work hard getting along in our relationships. The Bible tells us, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all. I tell you what, I've known Christians in my lifetime who somehow thought that it was their duty in life not to live peaceably with all, but rather to live critically with all, live arguably with all, live in dissension with everybody. They're always trying to win a fight. They're always trying to stir up a fight, trying to stir up trouble. They're always trying to prove that they are right, that they know better than you do or better than everybody else does. They have the right plans, the right ideas, and they, you know people like that? It's possible. It's not always possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. doesn't mean that we have to accept everything the world says that's false and say it's true. doesn't mean we have to approve of sin. It just means what we have to do is be peaceable as we hold to truth. Live peaceably. Thirdly, we are to help create peace between others. To help reconcile opposing parties. At the very least, we shouldn't add to the problem. So does that mean that every one of us should go and try to, uh, you know, solve the Russia-Ukraine thing? Probably not. We can't probably do much about that. But when you have two children in your household or two siblings in your household or two siblings in your church or two friends in your group or whatever, people who are not getting along, we should be trying to help reconcile the problem, reconcile the people, rather than adding to the fuel, adding to the fire. Uh, so many times I see Christians do this. They'll be talking to, you know, two people are having a spat and they go talk to one and they, oh, yeah, that's horrible. I shouldn't treat you like that. <laughs> yeah, they're right. I shouldn't be like that. 
And the thing gets bigger. And then they go over here and talk to this person. They do the same thing. Instead of saying, wait a minute, you know what? Let's see if we can work this out. Maybe there was a misunderstanding. Why don't we both go together? Especially as Christians, what are we supposed to do when there's a problem? We're supposed to go talk to the person and try to resolve it. We'll see that come up later. All right? Not today. Another sermon later on. Anyway, we're to help be peace brokers. Again, Scripture says, Let us therefore make every effort, every effort, to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Especially here in the family of God, brothers and sisters. We ought to be those who help keep our family free of division and dissension and faction and fighting. Well, one last thing. I've got to make this fast here. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Is that really what that says? Yeah. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the beatitude. This is the blessing that nobody wants. It says, Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. I think it's significant. This is one beatitude, but it takes three verses and it's restated in three different ways from three different angles with different words. And I think he does it three different times in three different ways because if he didn't do that, we would all say, I don't believe it. It's a mistake. Again, none of us wants it. Who here really wants to be persecuted? I didn't think so. But he states it three times, I think, because it's important. And because there really is a blessing there. Now, I can't speak from great experience. This is where we do well to have some of our other brothers and sisters come in and talk on this one, on the blessing of persecution. I can't do it credibly because I haven't endured what our brothers and sisters around the world, millions of them have endured. But I can tell you they say there is blessing and persecution. Let me just give four from the text that have been, I have heard these and read these from the lips and the lives and the testimonies of our persecuted brothers and sisters. And they're here in this text. By the way, let me, before I do that, let me just, Give a couple other things first. First of all, we need to, one observation we need to notice is the reason for the persecution is significant. Notice he says, not just those who are persecuted, but those who are persecuted, what does it say? For righteousness sake, for doing what's right. The apostle Peter warned about this. He says, it's commendable, Second Peter chapter 2, it's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God so it's commendable if a guy is conscious of God trying to follow Jesus Christ and he, because of that, is being persecuted. That's commendable. That's worthy of, of mention and worthy of God's commendation is what he's saying. But of what value is it? How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? What good is that? 
You see, most of the persecution that you've endured in your life, I'm guessing, is like most of the persecution I've endured in my life. It's because I've been critical, difficult, demanding, harsh, unloving, unkind. In other words, I got persecuted because I deserved it. I brought it on myself. I was doing wrong stuff. He says, no, 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 no. If you're going to get persecuted, make sure it's for doing what's right, not what's wrong. And he goes on. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Again, Peter states the principle twice at the beginning and the end because he's not sure we're going to buy it. But it's true. Okay. Suffer for doing right. That's a good thing. Another thing I notice in this is that persecution is a sure thing. Verse 11, he doesn't say if you suffer. He says, blessed are you when others revile, when others revile you and persecute you. Not if. In other words, if we live long enough and follow Jesus faithfully enough, sooner or later there's going to be a cost to pay. may not be what we call big persecution, but there's going to be a cost. And it may be big. It's certain. Jesus said it this way, Remember the word I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Okay, now, but he says again and again, he says in verse 10, he says, Blessed are you. He says in verse 11, Blessed are you. He says in verse 12, Rejoice and be glad in persecution. He said it four times there. We really believe there's blessing in persecution? Look at it real fast. Four reasons why there is blessing, why there is joy, why there is happiness even in persecution. First reason, verse 10, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First reason why we can have joy in persecution because there's heaven. Whatever persecution you endure this life, big or small, from our perspective, whatever it is, it's temporary. Life is this long. The older we get, the shorter it is. <laughs> and whatever persecution you are enduring, it will have an end. Because this life has an end. But we have an eternal future. Kingdom of heaven. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and enduring suffering because of righteousness sake, you know that there are eternal blessings. You have the kingdom of heaven. By the way, if you listen to our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, when they worship, when they sing, when they write, when they pray, you know what they talk about all the time? Heaven. When you listen to the 21st century American church, you know how often we talk about heaven? Not nearly enough. Why is that? Because we're so stinking at home in this world. When you get persecuted, you're not really at home here anymore. You want to get out. You think about heaven. Heaven's coming. Secondly, why is there joy in persecution? Because of Jesus. Jesus said, verse 11, you are suffering. He says, on my account. That verse ends. On account of me. There is honor in suffering for the name of Jesus. You look at the apostles in the book of Acts. There, and is it chapter 3 or chapter 5? Offhand, I can't remember. 
where it says that they went out rejoicing, having just been beaten, thrown in prison, beaten, and they go out and it says they're rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name, the name of Christ. There's honor in suffering with Christ. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 talks about that I may know Him, and you know he goes on in the list, and the fellowship of the suffering. There's some great fellowship and nearness to Christ that comes only with suffering. I tell you, read the testimonies, listen to the testimonies of suffering brothers and sisters. They'll tell you, when I was in prison, I felt Jesus right there with me all the time. We miss that when we don't suffer. There's honor and blessing with Jesus. Thirdly, Jesus says, verse 12, Great is your reward in heaven. There's eternal rewards. They're great. Jesus pays His accounts. They're eternal rewards. Lastly, you're in good company. In good company. He says, for so persecuted they the prophets before you. When you suffer persecution, you stand with Jeremiah. You stand with Isaiah. You stand with Daniel. You stand with Elijah and Elisha and all the great prophets of old and the ones in Hebrews 11 whose names aren't even mentioned, but it says of whom the world was not worthy. You're standing in the company of the greats. Four reasons for joy and persecution. I'm sure there's more, but those are the ones in the text here. Anyway, Eight character qualities. As I said earlier, this list probably doesn't describe you fully. This list is a lot bigger than you are. How's that? At least it is me. When I compare myself to this list, whoa. But it's here to tell us what we're to aim for, what we're to aspire for. How are we to live? How are we to be as Jesus' followers? These are things to aim for. And when we fall short... It's a tragedy. And it should be a great motivator to realize I fall short because of two things. One is because when I fall short of this list, I'm not looking like that good picture Jesus is painting of his followers. And that picture that Jesus is painting of his followers really is a picture of him. And when the world looks at me, if I don't if I'm not living up to this, they don't see Jesus. They see Keith. And what they need to see is Jesus. That's a tragedy. The second reason it's a tragedy is because Jesus said this is what brings happiness and joy. Blessed are these things. And if, because each one of these, if you have this, this. It's a guarantee. It's a promise. When we live up to this, we will experience these blessings. The more that we live up to this, the more joy, the more happiness we will have in our life, the more satisfied we will be. And so it's a tragedy when we are falling short. So again, folks, no shame here, no beating you. This is a call to us. Let's look at this list Jesus gave us. He gives us a list of things to aspire to, beginning this afternoon on the drive home from church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I've gone long, but this is, we've gone short in digging into what is here. But how we need this, we need these truths, both so the world can see you and see the grace and the mercy and the love that you offer to them, which they will only hear of through us. And they will only see it through us. So, Father, may we live 
as Jesus' followers, both for the good of the world as well as for our own good, that we might experience the joy that you desire for us as your people. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.